this is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two stellar humanoids, Brian Murray. Hello. And Paul Jaceley. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week. Super excited to be here. Super excited that you're both here. Just genuinely super excited to talk about comic books. That's what we're here to do on the show. So let me ask the question that I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Brian. Uh, I've been good. I would be better if it wasn't randomly 95 degrees in Michigan. <laughs> um, hey, it's just as hot here in New York. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, by the time our listeners are hearing this, it will have cooled down to reasonable temperatures. Reasonable fall temperatures, at least. Yeah, like something that isn't, you know, like the surface of the sun. <laughs> but other than that, I've been good. Comics have been treating me right. I finally caught up on a bunch of my backlog. So nice. All the, nice. All the giant days I've been neglecting, all the, the Hulk <laughs> that's just been sitting around. Uh, thankfully, those have both remained excellent comic books in the time I've been away. <laughs> that's good to hear. Part, part of me is dreading, just like, oh, God, what if they started to suck the instant I stopped reading them? Because <laughs> that's how it always goes, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, don't worry, I can bank four or five issues of this, no big deal. Uh, and then it's bad. <laughs> but but fortunately, they are both still excellent reads. Um, Hulk especially. They're, they're continuing to deal with Jennifer Walters and her... Her mental health after the death of Bruce Banner and kind of what she's going through, how she's handling it. Uh, Spoilers, not very well. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to give away too much, but it seems very, it's very, it's very true to life, you know, where Mm -hmm. she's clinging to her coping mechanisms, some of which are not super healthy and convincing herself that she's fine when she's obviously not. And so it just, it, it really, it really rings true and hits close to home for somebody who's, you know, dealing with mental health issues. Gotcha. I'm really excited to read that volume. I actually just picked it up um, this past week, so yeah, Yay. it's really good. I think <laughs> I think you're really gonna like it. Cool. I read. Uh, I finished off Edge of Venomverse as well, which is like the opposite experience <laughs> of like I kept buying these Venomverse books, and then I got into them. I'm like, oh no, they're bad. This isn't good at all. Number four was kind of interesting. Number four is actually a sequel to Old Man Logan, like the huh. the original. Wait, it, ha, what? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it takes place in that universe and picks up with Logan, like, telling Bruce Banner Jr. that he had killed his father back in the day. What? Um, and then the, the, Venom, the Venom T-Rex actually makes a comeback. In this in this comic, oh right. <laughs> so I mean, like, oh, like wow, that that was cool. And then the final issue was Deadpool Venom, just like making poop jokes and gutting everything in sight, and just like all the all the worst things about Deadpool, just condensed into a single issue. Fun. I'm, I'm sure that that's kind of a, a matter of taste thing. Other people may disagree. Sure. But I thought that it was a, a very well-drawn comic that focused on all of the wrong things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something, I guess, right? If you like mm-hmm. decent Venom art, that's this is the book for you, I guess? Yeah, which, I mean, if, if, if you want a Venom Deadpool story, there is actually an older, uh, it's like a four or five issue arc of... Venom, uh, it's, it's Deadpool versus Carnage. And Deadpool gets a symbiote at one point in that. And it's it's much better than hmm. what Edge of Venomverse gave us. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also read Mass Effect Discovery uh, numbers two and three. Um, if you're a fan of Mass Effect, this is a really cool book, just because it's it involves a character from the new Mass Effect Andromeda game, but it doesn't focus on any of the main storyline stuff. So it's not like it's not stuff that we've seen before. It's more of a more of a cop drama or like a almost like a procedural of this guy trying to figure out where this person who disappeared went off to. Interesting. I <laughs> licensed books like that are always really cool because I think it gives you know this is like how the Star Wars extended universe starts, right? Where you're you've got these stories that you want to tell in the universe, but you can't affect the main storyline, so you just go off on this tangent. Um, and can and you have the potential to develop some really cool stories there. I think that it's good to see that they're still publishing Mass Effect stories because I always kind of thought that after Mass Effect three was done, they would just kind of drop the universe because it wasn't a big selling title anymore. But I guess with Andromeda, they've got more ammo to shoot hmm. with. Yeah, definitely, and it's cool to see like you know the artists take on all the really cool, interesting alien designs that Mass Effect right. had. So like the right. the Corin and stuff like that. It's no, not the Quarren. The Quarren are Star Wars. Quarians. <laughs> yes, yeah, I knew what you're talking Yeah, I couldn't, yeah. I'm right there with you, Brian. I got you. God, I can... I, I, can, hope, I hope the I can, listeners do. <laughs> I can actually, like, feel Nick judging me right now. <laughs> like, as, as another, as a fellow, like, sci-fi nerd, he's... Oh, boy. <laughs> Send your hate mail to IRCB at destroythesibe.org, and I will forward it right to Brian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, just send us stuff, you know? You can send me a gift card if, if you want me to do something else that will that will upset another podcaster. Yeah, um, I'm I'm for hire. <laughs> cool, Paul. What about you? What have you been reading, man? Um, I'm catching up on stuff. Uh, I've been way behind on my monthly books because I for some reason I've been reading a lot of books that don't have pictures. I don't know. That's really dumb. But for some Weird. reason I've been reading a lot of like book books and not comic no, books. No, I've, but, I've heard of those. Yeah, uh, they're not as they're really not as fun as comics. Trust me. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I made some time for some comics this week, and luckily they were all very good. Uh, Redlands number two, fantastic book. This is the sort of you know Southern Gothic crime book written by Jordi Belair, art by Vanessa Del Rey. The first issue was basically a bunch of witches murdering racist cops in Florida, and that was great. But the second issue kind of goes into a deeper, bigger story here, so you get a more sense of the world that's being built here. And um, mm -hmm. I'm really getting a sort of True Detective Season 1 vibe from this, where it's police procedural, but this weird occult murders taking place at the same time that they're investigating, sort of metaphysical and supernatural elements to the story. It's really great. The artwork is very... It's very different than I expected, but it's very good. It really fits the tone of the story a lot. I think this is going to be a very special book. So I really enjoyed the totally. second issue a lot. Uh, Batman number 30 and 31, these are the, well, 31 was, I think, the penultimate issue of the War of Jokes and Riddles, so that's wrapping up. And I really didn't expect Kite Man to be such an important character in that story. Um, <laughs> Kite Man, hell yeah. <laughs> it's really fun. I mean, I like that Tom King decided to take one character and really dive in, and, you know, there have been two issues in this story that basically focus exclusively on Kite Man and kind of give you his origin story of sorts. And he really makes Kite Man a very sympathetic character. This guy that just is, gets caught up between the Riddler and the Joker. And it kind of gives you that man-on-the-street perspective. At the same time, he's a guy that dresses like a kite and flies around. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really yeah. fun. I, I still think that the double monthly shipping for this title 
throws off some of Tom King's storytelling pacing at times, but they're still fun books. Like I really, I'm really enjoying this this series, The War of Jokes and Riddles. So, same here. In other Batman related books, I read Metal Number Two, Dark Knight's Metal Number Two. It's got the big glossy silver stamped cover. Uh, it's embossed. <laughs> it's. I've been telling everybody that this book really is just somehow tapping into this weird nostalgia for '90s comics that I didn't really know I had because I read those books at the time, but I don't remember them that fondly. But mm-hmm. there's something about gimmicky covers and you know this type of over-the-top storytelling that's kind of dumb, actually really dumb, but sort of wallows <laughs> in that dumbness and celebrates it. I'm really, really enjoying yeah. it. I just really enjoy this stuff because it's when. Scott Snyder was doing his initial Batman run. It really felt like he was doing a more streamlined version of Grant Morrison's Batman run, like borrowing a lot of the same ideas, but sort of like streamlining them and making them less Morrisonian, I guess. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Metal feels like it's that, but he's going the opposite direction. It's like, all right, I did my sort of streamlined pop music version of Grant Morrison's prog rock Batman, and now this is going to be the, you know over-the-top power metal version of Batman. <laughs> and that, and that was, actually that. works, now I think about it. Yeah, so that's kind of yeah. why I'm digging it. So just Now I'm just picturing hair metal Batman. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, picking, like, picturing like a, you know, a spinal tap version of Batman and the Robins, like coming out on stage and then a miniaturized Joker comes from the sky, <laughs> you know. I, I think we're writing a Batman comic right here, right now. We should put this down. This <laughs> yeah. is great. Um, and then I also read Doom Patrol number eight. It's really great. Although there's a point in the book in which I think one of the characters, the main character, Casey Binkle, seems to have um, uh, adult relations with her house cat. But her house cat uh, had like ran away and come back sort of anthropomorphized. So he's like kind of human. What? And there's what? A, some implied romantic <laughs> tension between them. I don't know. It was very strange. And something there, if there's something in a Doom Patrol comic that, go, that makes me say, boy, that's really weird. It, you know it's strange. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's enough yeah. other I've gotten into very happening. weird territory. But um, it's still a really great book. I really love the artwork a lot. And I like that it's uh, apparently not hesitant to go to some unexpected places. So uh, great stuff. What about you, Mike? <laughs> uh, for me, uh, I sat down. I didn't really read comics until about Friday, Saturday this week. So I've been just putting it off and, I don't know, tired and playing a lot of Zelda. So I you know, blew through a bunch of comics yesterday. Um, and on Friday I started to read Nimona as part of a hashtag on the internet. I was like, huh, this sounds cool. Hashtag Friday reads. And I was like, I'll read Nimona because it's been sitting on my, my bookshelf for a little while. And this book is straight up adorable and awesome, cool fantasy, all ages fun. And I understand now why it is a bestseller. Why like people like younger kids read this book because it kicks butt it hits like all of the quirky fun hijinks sides of things it does like you know some character growth and plot progression that's really smart and i was really impressed i just the only thing that i would say that i wanted out of this book that it didn't have was another hundred pages of just <laughs> hijinks um for those of you who don't know what pneumona is it's the story of this shape-shifting girl who shows up to team up with this quote-unquote evil bad guy um named Blackheart. I'm, I'm getting. I'm gonna forget all the names, so I'm so sorry. Um, but she teams up with this quote unquote bad guy, and she's like, "Yeah, let's blow up the city." And he's like, "Hold on, there's rules. We we can't just do that. I'm a villain, and I, you know, I fight against the hero, and then eventually I lose, and I come up with a new plan." And she's like, "No, we could just win." And so 
she's pushing this this quote unquote evil character over the line, and there's some back and forth, and I won't spoil it because it's a really good story, and it kind of breaks your heart in the end, and I really like that. Um, the, but the overall, art is really cool too. <laughs> yeah, and Noel Stevenson's art is really cool. If you like, you know, the look of early Lumberjanes, um, that's exactly what this is. She used to, you know, work on Lumberjanes, and. Man, there, there was just the beginning half of this book was just full of fun little quirky strip-like comics, and I really, really enjoyed that. And so when it got to the actual story, I mean, I appreciated that as well. But I really wanted like another hundred pages of them, just like, uh, excuse me, of Nimona and the Blackheart. I don't think that's what his name is. Um, just being goofs. Um, because I thought that was really fun and entertaining. I, I would read an ongoing web series of that, which I know that this is a web comic to begin with, but I really like this book. It was a lot of fun. Like I'm going to take my copy and give it to some youth who needs to read comics and say, here, here's your, here's the beginning. This is considered an actual book because it's not placed in the comic section. So hmm. solid book, solid read. I highly recommend it. Um, I also read Mr. Miracle number two. Um, I don't really know what to say about this book because there was so many things of like implied larger continuity that was sort of explained um i dug it there was some fun action there was like you know the big what if twist at the end that seems interesting and I, there's a whole thing with dark side that i'm just like dark side is dark side is what um <laughs> that's the big question <laughs> of the book but it's, but it's not uh, a question that's the thing it's not a question right it's not a question it's just dark side is like it's a statement yeah, yeah, because at least implied in the first issue that Darkseid actually got the anti-life equation, so his will is imposed on the universe. So he is like, you know what I mean? So his okay. So that's that's the whole point of Darkseid. He's trying to get the anti-life equation so that his will becomes truth. And so he's enslaved, gotcha. enslaved, you know, the universe by saying, "No, my will is, and you will obey it." So it's not really a question. That's just a statement of his will yeah, being I guess- imposed. Yeah. Yeah, so and that's the thing that I I'm not I wasn't a hundred percent aware of. I I, sure. know, I think they they spell it out sort of in the issue or in the first issue or maybe the second issue. Yeah, but I I didn't know like there again. There's the whole thing with the anti life equation that I'm just totally not aware of. Right, and I'm trying to use this series as a as hopefully a way to discover that because it you by the end of the second issue you can tell they're going into some deeper. Um, story mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm excited to see how that plays out like as a 12 issue maxis i'm i'm really really excited for that so that I'm, that's all i'll say about it mr miracle's pretty solid i think everyone's calling it the greatest book of all time forever <laughs> all other comic books should be burnt except for this one so we'll see how this plays yeah, out that, that might, might might not bode well for our podcast in the future there's only one <laughs> yeah, comic book <laughs> you just read mr miracle 1 through 12 over and over and we have to try to re-dissect it really excited to see how that plays out otherwise I did read Man Thing number five. This is the R.L. Stein um, German German Peralta. I'm Hermann Peralta. I'm. This is another one of those names that's going on the I read comic books how to pronounce list. Um, <laughs> it's a big week for that list. We, <laughs> we actually are making that, so I hope people are excited. But anyways, I did read Man Thing number five, which ends the mini series of Man Thing by R.L. Stein, and I remember this being a big deal when it was announced. And the book feels like how I remember the Goosebumps books being written, which means that things are just kind of blunt, in your face, bad jokes, bad plot, bad everything, and yet it's still enjoyable for some reason. And I wouldn't say overall this is a great comic book, but I think this is a great Goosebumps story that features Man-Thing. 
so I, I got to credit Arl Stein. Like, he didn't break from the types of stories that he's used to, to, to telling. So this series ended up being just another Arl Stein book. And so you can take that as it is. Like, I think if you go back and reread those Goosebumps books, you're going to find that they're not great, but that they're really entertaining and goofy. And that's kind of what kept you out of actually crying when you were reading those books from them actually being scary. You know, um, some of the some of the stuff that he plays around with in those books is really terrifying from an yeah. outside perspective but when you read the books it's not nearly as terrifying it's spooky but it's not going to make you you know hide under your bed sheets and you know not be able to sleep or anything like that and i think that's what man thing ultimately was um less on the spooky side more on just the wacky side uh and i i liked it overall i mean i i wouldn't go pick up the trade but i read it because i was like i i at least owe rl stein for you know making my childhood fun so it was a good story and the backups were all sorts of ridiculous short stories in the same vein of over the top everything mildly sexist um classic stories i guess <laughs> that's what i would call them um yeah uh, i also read injection 11 through 14 and holy shit this book is now at 11 it's totally kicked itself up a notch. Um, the first two arcs, I think, were slow builds to try to get to this third arc in Injection, where the quote-unquote Injection itself is doing some really bizarro things and has grown from an infant status to a teenager status, and it's really got a big fuck-you mentality to its parents. And that's what's making this book kick a lot of butt. And seeing that I was just in England, and I did go to Stonehenge. <laughs> I, I thought it was actually cool, because I know a little bit. Like, I, ha I have one modicum of knowledge about stone circles. And so uh, the issues 11 through 14 in Injection are about a specific stone circle. Like, I think it's made up, but it's about a stone circle, and I thought that was really cool. So if you're not reading Injection, get on that. Get on that business. Um, finally, I read this morning, I read at Lazarus X plus 66, numbers 1 and 2. This is the miniseries that's taking place of the Lazarus ongoing title while Michael Lark catches up and Greg Rucka kind of recharges his mental batteries. Um, so issue number one is written by Greg Rucka and Eric Troutman with art by Steve Lieber. Uh, this was really cool. This focuses on the Carlisle Daggers. So if you're into the Lazarus series, you know that the Daggers are the military operatives that are like basically the highest class of military um, operatives in the Carlisle family, which is what... Um, forever is a part of so to see their training and how these people go from regular soldiers to this dagger level um was really really cool i enjoyed that the second issue was all about the moray family and which is the family that had from south america mexico and they have their robot cyborg lazarus who's kind of has a romantic relationship with forever spoilers for issue three sorry um and yeah, it's very, very cool uh, to see how other families operate. I think that's going to be the biggest, that has been one of the most interesting parts of the story. You see how the Carlisle family functions, which is where Forever is, which is the main focus of the story. But then it, when you, you get these little peeks into how other families in the Lazarus universe work, um, it kind of changes your perspective on how the world actually functions. You feel like Carlisle is this big powerhouse that kind of pushes everyone around because they control most of America. But at the end of the day, really, there's the power isn't as shifted as you think. And these other families actually have more to them than just being like subordinates to the Carlisle family. So seeing that reflected in issue number two was really, really cool. Um, so if you're into the Lazarus series, you best be on this Lazarus X plus 66. Hmm. It's a lot of fun. 
So I don't. Are you guys reading Lazarus at all? I I'm just curious. I I read volume one. Okay. Same here. I made it through the th- the first five issues, and it really never worked for me. But everyone's raving about it, so maybe I should give it another shot. Yeah. yeah. I actually thought it was Is really it? cool. I'm just very lazy and have not like <laughs> sought out more of it. Gotcha. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I mean, I, th- I think everyone out there who's reading it is going to recommend it. It's a very solid Greg Rucka story. It feels mm-hmm. very much like uh, another book that I'm totally blanking on, so I'm just going to stop talking. And instead, <laughs> we are going to talk about comic books that are coming out this week. Comic books are released on September 27th, 2017. What are you both excited for? Let's Let's start with you, Paul. Uh, this week, I'm excited for the Commandy Challenge number nine. I've been really enjoying this series, and I get to pick this because it allows me to pick a Tom King book for my pick of the week. <laughs> uh, this particular nice. issue is written by Tom King, art by Kevin Eastman, who, of course, we all know as one of the co-creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So that's oh, yeah. pretty exciting. That's a big that's a big name, a big legendary artist, and it's actually the first time he's done interior art for a DC book. So it's kind of a big deal. Ever. It's kind of exciting, yeah. Wow. Wow. So yeah, I mean those I are did not know that. two um it's interesting, yeah. So Tom King's kind of a younger, up and coming creator. Kevin Eastman is a legendary artist working together on Commandy. This book has been pretty interesting and I it's kind of fun to read issue to issue because you get to see just how differently each creative team takes on the Commandy universe and the concepts. Mm-hmm. It'd be very interesting to read it as a trade or in a all in one go to see how they actually look and fit next to each other but each issue kind of stands alone because it's a different creative team so i'm kind of enjoying that and just that it's a cool concept where you just have one creative team write a story and then pass along and say we'll figure out how to solve this cliffhanger and then they have to figure (laughs) it out and they have to create an even bigger cliffhanger for the next team so right it's weird because i love jack kirby obviously and I like it when people sort of tackle his work because his work is so idiosyncratic in a weird way, especially his stuff for DC, like Commandy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see people take that on. But part of Jack Kirby's life and career was always championing the idea of coming up with new ideas and creating something new and different. And this book kind of walks the line between that. It says, well, we're going to pay homage to Jack, Jack Kirby by taking one of his most beloved creations, Commandy, but we're going to let people go wild with it and do whatever they want. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an interesting tribute in that sense. So this book I'm definitely excited for. I can't wait to see what Tom King and uh, Eastman can bring to the table. This book has just been filled with like teams like this, though, right? It's been just like banger after banger, right? Where of people just coming in because like I feel like it's just been big name after big name um, trying to tackle each of these commandy things. And I remember Nick saying, I think issue six had a storyline that seemed like it wrapped everything up. And yep. then issue seven came out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's what's kind of interesting. It's like a wild ride. It, it really is a wild comic book, and you know, deservedly so, because the original Commandy that Jack Kirby did is just like that, where there's obviously, there's issues of Commandy that Jack Kirby did where he'll introduce an amazing concept, and like two pages later, just kind of forget about it, and it never gets brought up again. It's just like, his brain was so <laughs> hyper during this era, where just like, he would introduce stuff, and just like, isn't that crazy? Anyway, here's something even crazier, and it just built and built and built, and I think they're really capturing that in this book, and it's it's great to see creators willing to just go you know all out pedal to the metal and just see what they can do that's awesome brian what about you what are you excited for uh i'm excited this week for hi-fi fight club number two i will put out with a slight caveat that i have not read hi-fi fight club number one (laughs) i actually i only found out about it when i was going back and reading through all my giant days because this is a boombox book 
Mm -hmm. Um, But it is checking off like every item on the list of things that Brian will like. So I'm (laughs) fairly certain that we're going to be okay. It takes place in New Jersey in 1998 in uh, a record store. (laughs) Stars a a diverse cast of young women who, uh, you know, sling sling records and deal with, you know, like wannabe grunge kids and metalheads and stuff during the day. And Mm -hmm. then uh, at night, they're just like, uh, you know, it's a front for a vigilante fight club. (laughs) <laughs> um. <laughs> what? so this is like high fidelity just minus all the dumb bullshit and plus power rangers or something <laughs> i mean it seems to be like i said i haven't read issue number one but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all of the summaries i've read have had me just very excited uh it's created and written by carly Ustin. i'm probably mispronouncing that put it on the list um <laughs> and pencils by uh nina vacueva it's it looks really good uh there's yeah. a if you if you find it on on boom's website there's like a three or four page sample and it's just it's the very like very clean sort of like not trying to make it look like real life but also not super cartoonish it's just very like neat looking mm-hmm. um the the colors by rebecca nulty are very appropriate for what's going on like they're you know they're bright they're vibrant and they convey a sense of the world very well and i am uh, i'm very excited to go to my shop and pick that up that's great yeah this is this has been on my list too i've been meaning to grab this as well yeah that sounds awesome i as someone who worked in a record store in the early 2000s that sounds very appealing right up my alley sadly to say we did <laughs> yeah. not have a fight club in the basement but that well, you know of yeah, that exactly that I know, who know yeah no no offense you do kind of look like a narc so i can see why they wouldn't <laughs> tell you that's true yeah <laughs> i can't blame them <laughs> paul paul's got cop face it's not it's not his fault it's just uh that's great what about you um, mike oh for me this week i am super excited for the conclusion of batman slash the shadow which has been a crazy wild ride into the world of batman with the shadow in tow i've never read a shadow book in my entire life the closest i've come to is seeing the shadow movie by frank miller and i don't think that that's very close to the actual story of the shadow so the way that steve orlando and scott snyder who are the writers on this book have been portraying it things is that and this is a, this is a spoiler for issue one, but the shadow has been Bruce Wayne's tra- trainer for everything in his life. So whenever Bruce Wayne went off to go do some kind of training, it was the shadow who was the person that was teaching him all this stuff. And so the shadow's always been with him. So he knows Bruce Wayne. He knows Batman. He's been following him. And when the big bad of the story, the stag, shows up in Gotham to create their final kill that will end the world or end all of Gotham, um, they managed to recruit all of Batman's, you know, rogues gallery, including the Joker, who is in the forefront of the story saying, oh, it's going to be so funny when we kill Batman. And so it's been really cool to see them, you know, fight off all the various villains in the shadow trying to teach Batman that, you know, he couldn't have done everything that he's done by himself and that he needs people, which is pretty much the classic Batman storyline at this point. Mm -hmm. But Riley Rossimo's art has been stupendous. Like, this is some of the best work I've ever seen him do. And 
this is including some of the some of the greater stuff that he's done like Rasputin and Proof over at Image and this also includes the stuff that he did with Night of the Monster Men which is kind of why I feel like I have a bias towards it because <laughs> his work in Night of the Monster Men on the Batman crossover event was so fucking phenomenal I was like crying for more Riley Wasmo on Batman and this book is so great like the way he draws the shadow the way he draws all of the various rogues gallery villains it's it's top notch some of the best portrayals of some of the of these characters are in this book and I really appreciate the attention to detail like and taking the shadow and making him this phantom-esque super anti-hero which is pretty much what he is because he's got guns and he's willing to kill people and batman's big rule throughout this story has been no killing but we will do what you want to do which is stop the stag um there's a lot more intricacies that go into the story and i don't want to spoil it because i think this is a really solid mini and we don't get i mean we get a lot of these for batman but i don't think we get enough of them in superhero books in general and i really love this crossover like steve orlando and scott snedder are doing a really cool job just telling a straightforward we gotta kill the bad guys story and i dig it i'm definitely digging it and so i'm i obsessed (laughs) i like this is like one of the i never thought that a batman book would be at the top of my stack every week when it came out or when it came out Mm -hmm. and this is one of those books like i really love tom king's batman right now but man batman the shadow is so kick butt the Mm -hmm. art alone is fantastic this one of those books, every time it comes out, I'll see it on the rack of the shop, like, oh, I need to be reading that, but I've just never actually bought it. So as soon as the trade comes out, I'll be all yeah. over it. I can't wait. Yeah, it's, oh, man. it's I can't even get over how good it is. Like, this awesome. book makes me excited about superhero comic books again. <laughs> um, which also, like, Nick has been telling me he's been reading some of the Shadow stuff, and it almost makes me want to try some of the Shadow um, <laughs> to see what that's all about. So maybe, maybe that was the goal. Dynamite and DC was just trying to sell me on the Shadow, and they fucking got me. <laughs> show this week is a goodreads book of the month this month's pick by our goodreads group was fatale volume one by ed brubaker sean phillips with colors by dave stewart as a pre-warning warning to the whole show spoilers for this entire volume if you have not read fatale volume one there will be spoilers for the entire volume so i guess to get things started um paul brian what did you guys think of this book i know i don't know how much Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips, you have read. So maybe just to give people like a a precursor of where you are coming into this book, um, what did you think? I guess, well, let's start with you, Brian. As far as I know, I have never read any of their stuff. I okay. think this might okay. have been my intro. Cool. Well, like, we picked a kind of solid one, I think. Uh, yeah, I actually, I wound up liking it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Uh, generally I'm not a big fan of like the, the noir mystery type of story. Yeah. Um, but something, something about this just kept me really engaged through the whole thing. Um, I thought that the, the art, while not like my favorite art style, like it's not my favorite way a comic could look. It works so well for this story. Like it, Oh, Totally it completely captures that noir feel that you need to have for something like this to succeed. Mm-hmm. Combine that with Brubaker's writing and they, they managed to put together a noir story that somebody who doesn't like noir is still enjoyed. 
So <laughs> it's definitely like a hats off to you guys moment. Great. Paul, what about you? What did you think? What's your overall feeling about this book? Well, I'm definitely on Team Brubaker and Phillips. Uh, when mm-hmm. I started reading comics regularly again, uh, this is well going on 10 years already. Um, but one of the first books I started buying regularly was Criminal. So I've been on oh, their, nice. their board uh, the whole run. Everything they do, I, I pick up. So I was reading Fatale right away. They to the point where like I walked into the store and I hadn't even pulled it on my pull list, but the, the comic shop owner is like, we know you read this stuff, so here it is for you. They already like knew I wanted to read <laughs> Brubaker and Phillips, everything they do. And um, nice. in that regard, it's I remembered not liking, or I shouldn't say not liking, but I, I remember when this first started, this first volume didn't really click for me. It wasn't until a good like 10 or 12 issues in where I really sort of began to really enjoy Fatale. But going back and rereading these first uh, this first volume, it was a lot better than I remembered, and that sounds like faint praise. But no, it actually I remember yeah. I, I was reading it today to get ready for the podcast. Like, boy, this is actually a really solid take because it is it's a weird mix of ideas. You have the the noir crime stuff in the fifties. You have the H.P. Lovecraft mythos. You have some, you know, corrupt cops drama. It's all sort of thrown together. It's all stuff. I've never seen Rubrik and Phillips do something supernatural until this book. And I think it took a while to figure it out. But once they kind of locked on and really ramped up the H.P. Lovecraft stuff, it felt very different from the rest of their work in a good way. Felt like fresh. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I've read this before as well. I actually didn't read it too long ago. I think it was maybe two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was still pretty fresh in my mind in terms of comic how comics go. And to Paul's point, it was so different that it really sticks out in my head more so than something like Incognito yeah. or Criminal, for instance, mm-hmm. and which is also by the same team. And so going back and rereading this book, having seen, you know, knowing the end, I, I also felt the same way as Paul, where I this first volume clicked a lot better the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Brian, if it, if it worked for you from the get-go, you're going to fucking love the rest of this book. Oh, yeah. Because I think uh, they set up a lot of really interesting pieces in the first volume and, you know, continuing to follow. Like, the whole book, I totally forgot, was about Joe, right? Like, yeah. Joe is the primary pro- like character in this book, but from the first issue, you don't get that right away yeah and I, I really like the switch up about halfway through the issue and it's not about Nicholas um, and of course in retrospect I was like well maybe that's why she's on the cover Mike maybe it's a fucking book about her um, <laughs> maybe, maybe so, fatal is a word that has always been used to reference a dangerous woman <laughs> you know I all of these things were pointing to the very obvious thing and yet I completely ignored it going into the book because I'm a dummy so I, I but yeah I really loved how like they this book, like, it just kind of, it feels so chaotic, and then by the last two issues, like, all the pieces tie together and mm-hmm. make a really cool ending. And knowing how the next volume starts and where the rest of the book goes, it's kind of like, like, there's a really good warm-up. Like, my 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 mouth is watering for more of this book <laughs> because I know what else is to come. Like, I know yeah. there's a third and a fourth course that's going to be really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, let's I mean, let's get into, like, the breakdown of this book. So the opening of this book is Nicholas... At his godfather's funeral, um, and he basically takes over his godfather's estate because his godfather was friends with his grandfather, and there's a whole big like past story that goes on that we'll get more into. Um, but overall, this book begins to focus on this woman, Joe, and how she's kind of been everywhere, and she exists now, and she exists in the past, and there's a mystery to that. Um, and 
I, like to, to go back to what Paul said, like it's multifaceted storytelling in that we've got something in the present, we've got something in the past, there's news reporters involved, corrupt cops, and the occult is somehow involved. Mm-hmm. And now, the clarity of what that occult is isn't so clear at the beginning, and even in the first volume, you don't really learn to the full extent of what is going on, but um, I will say like... When they introduce, what is his name, Mr. Bishop, um, <laughs> who is the squid monster man, like, he is terrifying in this first volume, and I fucking love it. Like, Sean Phillips leans so hard into this stereotype male character who's old, he's got this big beard, he's sucking on a huge cigar, and they would do these panels when you know that he was doing something evil and mischievous, where you would see his pupils go from like a brown or whatever they normally were to a red and it was it's just creepy especially reading on guided view in the dark which is exactly what i did um (laughs) you just get these panels of him being like something nefarious is about to happen i fucking love that about this book um especially when it amps up to 11 later in the story um, mm-hmm. Did you guys get that same feeling? Because I could just keep going on and on about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, Sean Phillips is an incredible artist. And this book, um, I think, is an incredible showcase for his talent because it gives him an opportunity to kind of stretch his, his design sense or his character sense a little bit. Most mm-hmm. of Criminal and most of their other books are pretty, you know, grounded in reality. Uh, so right. this book, right. the fact that he can kind of dip in and do more horror type art. I mean, there's some really grisly artwork in this stuff mm-hmm. when you see some of the, the rituals being performed or the aftermath of the rituals that are being performed. And I love that his just ability to really capture that visceral feeling at the same time using his cartoonist sort of sense to hint at things. Those panels when it would show Mr. Bishop, uh, just like a, you would just see his face and some like fangs. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it just like a sense mm-hmm. of, yeah, there's something else going on here. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something else to this character that they'll get to later. But it's a very, very powerful image that they keep returning to. It works perfectly. And that was one of my favorite things about it is that it was such a slow burn as far as mm-hmm. the supernatural elements were concerned. Because it mm-hmm. would have been really easy for them to be like, we're doing a noir, but we're doing it sort of sort of Lovecrafty, and just immediately diving into that and uh, yeah, I appreciate them like not going full Hellboy from the get go. <laughs> sure, you know it's interesting. That's, so that's was... what this reminded me the most about. Most of yeah. mm-hmm. was a Hellboy type. You definitely have the World War II and the occult connection, so yeah, yeah. you can see that. What's interesting is I read this in single issues, and I'm assuming that you both were reading it in trade, or Mike, you'd be reading I, it digitally. Yeah, I read it uh, digital in singles. Okay. Yeah, I read so, it digital as well. The, what's interesting is that the single issues, like all of the Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips books, all of the single issues have backup material, whereas Brubaker is sort of telling you what the book's about or what the what to look for in the book. And then there'll always be an essay in the back by a different writer explaining some sort of uh, literary trope, like the femme fatale or noir. And right in the very first issue of the book, there's an essay about H.P. Lovecraft. So, was, so if you're reading the book in single issues, like I was, they were very clear at the beginning, like, this is going to be a Lovecraft-influenced story. Hmm. And I don't yeah. know if that would come through if you just read the book in trade. No, like, I, yeah. I mean, I picked up on it, like, after a little bit, but it certainly wasn't something that I thought was going to happen after, you know, the the first fifth of the book or so. Sure. Yeah, I think the, the one thing that really 
it was really interesting about this book is like you know we keep saying the distance they kept from the occult like they they would do other pieces of the story and it wasn't so ham-fisted full of like hp lovecraft which i think is kind of the problem with a lot of other books that try to tackle these types of subjects like if you think of Alan Moore's work that he's been doing, I think, for the last probably five or six or seven years over at Avatar, all of his books have just been heavy, heavy, heavy Lovecraftian, theme, like Lovecraftian themed, um, simply because there's just so much that he wants to cover. But it's almost like barreling you over the head with how much H.P. Lovecraft shit is out there, and maybe it's better to just say go read this book rather than read my comic book on a take of this thing yeah um whereas what's interesting about this book is that like really they've kept their distance they hinted at it when it was necessary but there is also other bits to the story there is the crime aspect there is the you know piecing together someone's mysterious past which is like the more thriller side of it i think which is what nicholas's story um is and kind of becomes further down the line and i don't want to like spoil anything other than that but mm-hmm. I mean, they they knew how to balance the story, which I really appreciated, because you could go find a Lovecraftian-themed book out there at any other publisher, even at Image, um, but this book is unique in that they didn't just hit you in the face with it constantly until yeah. the very end, when the occult becomes part of the main like story that's happening in the book. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really like the way that they're doing the past and present thing. The idea is that like Nick is reading one of his, his godfather's lost manuscripts, and that his manuscript is telling the story of his grandfather meeting Joe back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but he makes a comment. At, uh, the, I think it's the first time that we go back to Nick after going into the past for a while. He talks about how like X character name is obviously a stand in for Hank. But when we're actually seeing what's happening in the past, it's using all of their real names um, mm-hmm. And we can extrapolate from that that the name he used for Joe in the manuscript is not Joe. And so Nick has no reason to suspect that the woman he met is also the woman being discussed in this book. Mm-hmm. So I like how right. they've sort of like tipped their hand to the reader so we know, but Nick doesn't know yet. And Ooh, I, I, I like that that, that. that sets up for like a really satisfying reveal at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It adds to the tension between the characters really well. And I like the way that they kind of framed it because the the stuff that's set in the present day with Nick reading the manuscript is always presented as either a prologue or an, in, an interlude between the main story. So it's yeah. almost just like a break from the main story. Where, oh, yeah, here's what's the, the bigger framing device. But let's go back to what's what he's reading and what the story at hand really is. Mm-hmm. And it makes mm-hmm. for an interesting sort of tension. And that feels like... With Brubaker, he's such a student of traditional, you know, canonical film and crime noir, detective stories, crime stories. And that feels like a trope that a detective novel written in the 40s or 50s would have used. So I really like that. And I mean, Brubaker and Phillips can write hard-boiled crime fiction in their sleep. So the fact I like the fact that they're like, oh, let's do that. But let's add in all these other elements that we never really tackled. Yeah, and that, you know, that stands out. I think they've they've gone through that again. I think Killer Be Killed is another example of them doing that in a very different way. And that book feels very different from Fatal. So mm-hmm. that, that just speaks to their their creative um, abilities. Yeah, totally. So there there was a lot of uh, uh, I guess 
discussion, I'll say, on the Goodreads group. Um, I don't have any particular quotes because it's it's all mostly the same, and I don't want to necessarily call anybody out. But there was basically like a an overall feeling that the people who read this book didn't feel a lot from this book. Mm-hmm. Um, that Fatal was kind of just an okay so-so book, and that it didn't really peak interest to say like, oh, I want to continue, or I did continue, and it ultimately wasn't as great as I thought it was. Did you guys get that feeling at all from this book? Like you felt like it was just so-so, or were you like hooked in after this first volume? Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I read the whole series when it was coming out, so I feel like, and this is one of my least favorite things about contemporary pop cultures, is when someone says, oh, you have to wait till season three for it to get really good. Like, I hate it when people say <laughs> yeah, that. Because yeah. something really should grab you right at the beginning. I've always felt that. But these these creators I already was invested in, so I stuck with the book. And I will say it does get a lot more interesting, at least for me. And it be, does become, I think, more... Joe becomes a more interesting character as the book goes on. I think the thing about the femme fatale as a story trope is that she's a cipher. She just is something that is tempting men and men can't control themselves around her. And this early volume, well, that's really the way you feel about Joe. It isn't until later in the say, book. They kind of fucking hit that on the, like the nail on the head a million times over throughout yeah. this whole volume about like men literally stop in the fucking street and turn <laughs> to look at her because they cannot resist it. Like, yeah. Jesus Christ. I don't know if they were trying to like set up the stereotype to be overly in your face or not, but like, yeah, it was it was very hammered in that that trope right there. Yeah, and I think to the book's credit, the attempt to make it a book about the occult and introducing Lovecraft elements and a bigger story's attempt to explain why she has that power in a sense, or why that's mm-hmm. the case with Joe. And she becomes a very sympathetic character as the book goes on. And she becomes a lot more multifaceted and you know more than just a you know generically beautiful woman who men can't help falling in love with. She becomes a lot more interesting <laughs> yeah. as the book goes on. So I, I would say if this book, if you enjoy the art and you're intrigued by the story, but maybe but didn't grab you right away, give it another volume because I think it will pick up for you. Gotcha. And, I, and I do like how they're they're really leaning into that trope. And making it like mm-hmm. this is a supernatural thing that happened to her. Mm-hmm. And they're almost like emphasizing the fact that she can't really control it. Like it's not really she she can use it, but it isn't up to her who this ability is like affecting. Right. And right. I think that, that that is a really good commentary on how like you know, if if, if we look at the characters as people, like the characters don't have a choice in how they are portrayed. So it's interesting that she is being, you know, she's being acted on by an outside force to make her into this trope, not mm-hmm. unlike all of the characters who fit that trope. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, she slightly reflects on that, too. Like, very, like, very slightly, she reflects on how she has this thing, and maybe she doesn't like it, or especially in the moment where, um, I can't remember, the, the detective who she's with, um, who has that ability to see the other world would, like... Which, like, we totally, the book fucking totally glossed over the cop's ability to see the other people, quote-unquote. Yeah. Like, the other side of the mm-hmm. world. And he has, like, they're together because they both have this supernatural connection. Um, and the fact that, you know, she reflects on the fact that he couldn't have done the things that he did had he not, you know, carved up his body with these sigils and stuff. And she's, I, I feel like she she almost felt bad about the fact that this is 
a thing that she can't control in a weird way and I don't know if that's like a I don't know if that's like a good or bad thing but she she did in that moment reflect on like how men don't have any control around her and she can't do anything about it <laughs> because of the supernatural thing yeah um and her, her but, stance yeah, to just, me kind of seemed like I might as well use this like I never asked for this ability I didn't ask for any of this to happen but since mm-hmm. it did I'm going to I'm going to use it for me right like, right I mean, and yeah, we we did see her do that eventually. <laughs> um, there's uh, there was some discussion also in the Goodreads group about how Phillips's art was problematic for some people in terms of de- de- basically telling people apart and telling characters apart and things like that, which yeah. I, I think is something that we've brought up on the show before when we talked about Killer Be Killed or we've talked about other books that Brubaker and Phillips have done together. In that, you know, Phillips has one way of kind of drawing men. And unless he's leaning into a stereotype, you know, like I was talking about with Mr. Bishop, or he was doing something that was someone that was supposed to be characteristically standing out, otherwise his men all kind of look the same. They've got that same facial structure with the lips and the eyes, Mm -hmm. and they're always grimacing. Um, And you see that a lot in Criminal, too. Men with their lips and their eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was just talking to, to Kate about this earlier, and the way I described it was that he he gets all of his characters from central casting, except for like a handful of standouts. You know, I I would say slightly in his defense, if you watch any like film noir that was made in the forties or fifties, all the men do look exactly the same. So oh, totally. yeah, if that's what he's basing the look of the book on, it's going to kind of have that feel. Everyone's wearing a suit. You know, everyone's kind of dressed the same. Everyone kind of has the same features, more or less. They're all white. You know, yeah, so. and it's it's certainly not a condemnation of his yeah. skills. I just yeah. think that like like that's a choice that he made that like no one cares about these characters so I'm not going to put the effort into making them you know visually dynamic whereas yeah. you know like yeah. all the main characters like the two crooked cops each have their own distinct way of looking Nick has his own right. style like mm-hmm. and every character he's got, a, matters, he's got a white streak in his out. hair so he <laughs> he definitely stands out <laughs> God he's like the protagonist in like a young young adult book oh. Oh yeah, he's the protagonist in every anime you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just that's something that I think always comes up when it comes to Brubaker and Phillips working together in a lot of their books. Mm-hmm. Um, Phillips, I mean, he does have a problem sometimes with distinguishing people, but I think Brian's point is actually is super valid here. Yeah, um, that like there's no point in you know making all the side characters look visually distinct. Um, yeah, but like, I know that a lot I, of people felt like they got lost in the book because sometimes there's a mash of people in a room and you really don't know who's who or two characters look kind of the same, especially at a distance. Then it's really hard to tell them apart. And I don't want to make it sound like like if you if you if you make your background characters distinct, you're wasting your time. Like that's not what I'm trying to say at all. It's just that I think that it is a valid choice to say, look, these characters aren't important, so I'm not going to spend the time on them. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get you. Um, the one other comment, actually, from Kate, who runs the Goodreads group, she was saying, um, which is different than the Kate Bryan was talking about. That's his right. wife, totally different people. <laughs> um, she, Kate was saying that she felt like there was a, a moment of fridging in the book with um, uh, Nick's grandfather's wife, you know, where she is killed. Oh, and, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and. But the the overall point is that they needed a life for a life, and there was a whole thing that basically tied the story together. Um, I kind of saw that as them 
again adapt like holding on to the tropes of this type of story um where you know like an, an innocent needs to be murdered and and all this different stuff in order for something truly horrific like saving a man's life from cancer um you know those types of things they just happen in books and i don't know if that's necessarily a condoning of this type of storytelling um or i guess it is a condoning of this type of storytelling but um I, I don't know how else you you do a story like this without this without adding on to those pieces where something horrific has to happen to someone innocent in order for mm -hmm. a bad thing to come to fruition. You know? Yeah, yeah. it's 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 just a, a problem of like why why did it have to be his wife? Why couldn't it have been like a friend of his or his brother or something like that? Just because like because women are so often used as set pieces to motivate a man. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you could have used a male character instead of a woman just to just to break away from that a little bit. Like it is but, it yeah. is a trope. Yeah. It's part of the genre, like you're saying. But we don't have to embrace every part of something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, that might be a, something that is true of a lot of Brubaker and Phillips work is that they are students of particular genres and they tend to rely on those tropes of those genres, film noir, crime stories, detective stories. And this was attempt of, I think of them to branch out and do something very different. And mm -hmm. they might've like been attracted to tropes in that same regard to the detriment of the story in some sense. But at the same time, they the I think the end of the volume, the end of issue five, they point out that they needed a child, they needed a baby to perform this ritual. Yeah. So yeah. It, that I don't know if that justifies the the fridging as you know as it is, but there is a storyline sort of you know excuse for it in a sense. But it will, mm -hmm. whether or not that True. excuse works for you is up to you as a reader. Yeah, no, that yeah. that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, how else are you going to cure cancer with some dark, ancient magic, you know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I ask myself that every week. Um, <laughs> as, I, as I'm wrist-deep in babies, just... <laughs> as I, yeah, as I head down to my basement with my ritualistic goats, you know, I'm like, hmm, if only I had a fetus. Oh, um, well, okay, it's so, a living. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess overall, like, I guess we can, we can talk about what did you guys think? Do you think you're going to keep reading? Are you going to go back and reread it, I guess, Paul? What do you guys think about this? Yeah, I mean, I've already I've already checked out the next two volumes on my my library's digital app, so I'm definitely gonna gonna keep going. Yeah, uh, me too. I, I've already read it, and I enjoyed rereading the first volume enough. I'm curious to see how the rest of it plays out. Because again, like I said, I remembered enjoying the rest of it a lot more than the first volume. So I'll see if that's still true, or maybe I like the whole thing better. Um, I think one thing we do need to say before we move on completely is. David Stewart's colors are fantastic. I mean, we talk oh, about yeah. Sean Phillips as an artist, but Brubaker and Phillips always pick the best colorists around, and the book feels so great because of that. So, just want to say that. Yeah, I'm kind. Of, no, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to necessarily rush us off. I oh, realize sure. I asked that question, and we've got plenty of time still. You know, I've got all the time in the world to talk about this book, but <laughs> I'm mostly curious because I feel like the. What's really interesting about Vatel, um, and I'm, I want to get back to talking about Dave Stewart because I think there's a lot to be said okay. um, yeah. about his color scheme. But what, what's interesting about Fatal is that um, it's not a completely chronological story. Um, and we saw that a lot in the first volume where we jump back and forth between the past and the present. And that feeling gets more and more, it gets bigger and bigger as the volumes go on. Mm -hmm. And I really, 
I really got to say, like to Paul's point before, like as you read this book, you start to appreciate more and more of the callbacks and like the the there's like a repetition to a lot of some things in a good way um, because of the there's a big thing at the climax of the story that I really, really like. And I think reading this book just in a row really quickly, you feel that payoff so much better, I think, than if you were reading it month to month or even reading it volume to volume when they were coming out chronologically. Mm -hmm. Um you know, so waiting three to six months between each volume would be absolute pain. And I think if you just push through this whole book in, in one big go, it feels like a like a giant noir story from beginning to end. And it's really, really cool. So, Brian, I'm glad to hear that you're going to read volumes two and three <laughs> and so on. But back to Dave Stewart's colors, like they, you know, it's, it's really subtle what he did between the past and the present in terms of trying to distinguish, distinguish the times, because I feel like in the past, everything was darker and grittier, whereas in the present, there's a little bit brighter colors to things, and that's not saying much, right? This whole book <laughs> is just dark and drab. Yeah. Um, but you, I felt like there was maybe a little bit more color in, in, the past, or in the present, where you know everything was just a little bit brighter, like they brought the darkness level up, or I guess down a little bit to make all the colors seem less just muddied. Um, which I appreciated, especially when you when you saw like the the what are they? I don't know. I don't know. They don't get a name, but they're the guys with the glasses that are kind of just infinite clones. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really yeah. like how those guys are portrayed consistently from the past and in the present. And I felt like in the present they were eviler somehow. <laughs> <laughs> um, or maybe that's just the feeling that I got from this book. But yeah, Dave Stewart like totally kicked butt. And like I was saying before when, when we were talking about Mr. Bishop and he would go evil and then his eyes would go red, it's little notes like that throughout this book that really stand out and are like the big bad shit's about to happen sign that you need. And I really appreciate that. Like they when they used color, it was totally intentional and Dave Stewart fucking rocked it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember whenever they're portraying Joe... Sure, her character design is so simple, in a way. You know, she doesn't have a lot of distinguishing yeah. features. It's just, you know, she's a, a pretty woman. And it's not to put the character down and say it's she's generic looking, but Dave Stewart's colors, she's always being almost like a reflection of the mood of the scene that she's in, in a weird way. Mm -hmm. or either that or she's controlling the mood of the scene. Because the way that she's lit and colored is different from scene to scene, even though she kind of looks sort of, you know, like a canvas, like sort of plain. Yeah, I, I read that as like as part of whatever Eldritch thing happened to her that mm -hmm. gave her that power over Ben. I kind of read into that as like also why she looks exactly like you'd expect a femme fatale to look. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they did it. I think they did a fantastic job in terms of, you know, for the main character character design. I I think it it works really well and you you'll see Joe embrace that even further as the book goes on. Mm -hmm. um, so I, and I, I just want to talk about this whole book, but I, I, <laughs> I I'm trying to keep it focused on volume one. Yeah. Um, and the one other thing that I really enjoyed was that they, the occult stuff never got an explanation um, in that we don't know how Lovecraftian it really is. We never saw an actual ritual happen. We only ever saw the beginnings of a ritual or the aftermath of a ritual, right? Like right. we saw the hanged man. We saw all the dead um, I guess occultists, and we saw you know that, that fantastic moment where the police officer, the corrupt guy, he's chasing after the occultist. And he's like, I don't know what's going on, man, and he beats the shit out of him. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, the dude gets possessed, and he's like, Mister Bishop will see you. Like 
cool stuff like that that just hint at the supernatural throughout this book is really what kept me going in my first read through yeah. and I hope I hope that you guys got the same feeling because I thought that that was just like right when I thought right when it felt like there wasn't enough supernatural in the book they would just like drop in little morsels to keep you you know like enticed I really enjoyed that yeah and that's always the hinting at something is always scarier than seeing it full on so the fact <laughs> yeah. that you don't know they hint at the rituals being like sex magic rituals and like orgiastic and you know violent and I don't actually want to see that but them hinting at that makes it that much more terrifying yeah. Yeah. True detective, man. That's what made that first season so great. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, okay, well, I guess, um, you know, we can wrap up here. I feel like we've had a pretty solid discussion, and, you know, if you have any thoughts about the show, please let us know, um, or about this episode in particular, about Fatal. Um, shoot us a message on Twitter, send us an email or something like that. But anyways, let's get to some credits. Um, Brian, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter, at Brianhead. Uh, if you find pictures of a ski lodge or people skiing, uh, you're at the wrong Brian. <laughs> well, cool. Paul. I guess maybe okay. not the wrong one, but it sure as hell ain't me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ohipauli. O h h i p a u l i e. You can also check out my other podcast, uh, Spike Pile Driver. It's all about pro wrestling. We're on Twitter at Spike Pile Pod. And it's a fantastic show. I gotta say that. Thank you. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mike Rappin. You can also find me on Medium at, at Mike Rappin as well, where I haven't posted an X Men article in a couple of weeks because my brain is still trying to wrap my head around the next question. So he's, he's, I'm getting he's still to in it, the I promise. Mike, Mike <laughs> is still, still an art historian. Yes, I'm still in my art historian mode, and the X Men is <laughs> totally beneath me. I'm also British in France. You know, I've got all these things <laughs> going on for me. <laughs> Uh, you can also follow the show uh, on Twitter at IRCB Podcast. We retweet stuff and post things late at night. And we have great polls every week, like, which is the best scarf? Because I thought it was autumn, and I thought that scarves were a thing, but instead it's 90 degrees in the Midwest and <laughs> the East Coast. So who has the best scarf? You answer. Go vote right now. It's Doctor Who. There's no reason to have a poll. It's, it's Doctor Who. So. Um, Obviously, this was a Goodreads episode. We talked about a book that was picked by our Goodreads group, and you have to check out the Goodreads group on Goodreads. It's great. We have weekly threads, people talking about what they're reading each week, uh, polls like this where we pick a book or the months to discuss. Discuss. Kate does an awesome job of moderating all those discussions on Goodreads. Yeah. Uh, you can also check out our website, ircbpodcast.com. That's where we post links to the episodes, obviously, and show notes. So if there's a book we mentioned on the show and can't remember what it is, there's probably a list of it there. And we also have our weekly pull list that we post every Tuesday on there as well. Please uh, go ahead and find us on your favorite podcasting app. Rate us, subscribe, tell your friends, get the word out. Remember, you know, the more people who are listening to this show, the more people you have to talk about it. So it definitely benefits you. Uh, you can also email our show at ircb at destroythesive.org. Uh, please go ahead and reach out. You know, we, we love we love hearing from you guys. Whatever you get to say, if you want to complain about one of us, if you want to tell us that you think we're great, um, if you have any comments about whether or not you think Paul is actually a narc, please <laughs> go ahead and send those to us. Um, we promise that the police will not show up if, uh, if Paul yeah. gets wind. 
So it's an anonymous Wink. tip line. So. <laughs> Wink. Um, <laughs> Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They also do the music for the show, and I believe they recently released a remix album where they remixed a bunch of songs. It's very, very good. Um, I think it came out pretty recently. Either way, I just found out about it. It's great. So go find that on Bandcamp or on Google Music, Spotify, whatever you prefer. Um, Xander is the feeling you get after a good stretch following a midday nap at the beach. Uh, he also edits the show, and he's a fantastic wizard man. I love him. I love him so much. Uh, and finally, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening to the show. Thank you so very, very much for your time and dedication and listening to us goof around every week. We really, really appreciate it, and we appreciate everyone who reaches out to us to say hello, um, send us things that they like about comic books and what they don't like about comic books. Um, I think that's pretty much it. So we will check you next week, and we will have some really exciting news. I think I said that last week, but the news is still incoming. I'm still writing the news. So it's still it'll exciting. be here. It's right. still very exciting, I promise. So keep an ear and an eye out for that. We will check you next week. Yeah, regardless, I think I'm going to reread Criminal. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. Um, okay. Or, or I'm gonna re. I, I'm meaning to actually reread all of Mind Management, um, sure. Because I have the I have five volumes and I've only read to four, and the sixth one is out and I just need to buy it, complete my collection, and then do a read through. <laughs> but I don't know if you guys do that at all. Like I've got that and Chew because I, I bought volume twelve of Chew, but I have I told myself I'd reread the whole series before I read the last volume, like for that final push. Sure. And oomph. And I just need to get around to actually doing that. I always intend to do that because there's like certain runs like, yeah, this is really good. I'll reread this. And I never get around to it. I think the only really like runs that I've read several times are Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol and Love and Rockets. Yeah, see, I've got to get on that one, too. Because I bought that when they did that big Doom Patrol sale. That's right. I bought all of those Doom Patrol books. I just got to sit down and read them. I would really love to hear other people's thoughts on that. Because I think it's one of the best comic books ever. Like, I think it's Graham Morrison's best yeah. work. So I'd love to hear yeah, what yeah, people yeah. think about it. Oh, well, it's like I read I read his Animal Man run. You know, like the yeah. iconic, infamous like, Animal Man run. And I thought that that was such a cool thing. And I it, <laughs> it had been done in other comics, right? Like yeah. since then. It, it's, that, it's that effect. The Seinfeld isn't funny effect, right? Where <laughs> right. like... You see the homage to the thing that originally created something, and then when you go read the original, you go, oh, this wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be, but, like, that's the problem. And and so when I read the Animal Man run, uh, where, you know, fucking Animal Man literally steps out into somewhere ever in England Grant Morrison was living at the time mm-hmm. and fucking has a conversation with him like like no one I don't I don't think anyone has gone that far no. since then like I read one other book where they did that it was a little one shot thing but I don't like they didn't spend an entire like issue of the creator and the creation talking to each other in such a way I thought that was it was still very very good even after all these years and all these different homages to that thing yeah yeah that's a really interesting moment because I mean, you've seen, you see, I could see that happening in like a creator owned book, but the fact that's like a DC book, which means Grant Morrison as a character is like part of the DC continuity. You know what I mean? Because he appeared in the book. So, did he show up in Multiversity at all? Because that would have been insane, right? I think so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Grant Morrison writing himself again as a character. That's great. Uh, Yeah, I've, I've been 
this fucking Amazon Kindle sales have been kicking my ass lately. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw any, if you guys grabbed anything in the last week or so. They did huge sales. That's where I grabbed, like, She-Hulk, and <laughs> I got all the Star Wars books that I didn't own. Because um, I really wanted to read Aphra, but I wanted to read all of Darth Vader, and then I realized that Vader Down was a thing, so I had to read all of Star Wars <laughs> to build up to Vader Down. Yeah. Because um, I'm a sucker, and they were like a dollar eighty a volume. Like, how do you turn down a dollar eighty a volume? But when you buy fifty of them, it's yeah. still fifty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. That is. That, the, yeah. For that much, I could have bought a Kindle to read these things on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh. That's why. I, oh yeah. I, speaking of, I can't. Oh, I can ahead. never buy anything off these sales because I don't have a Kindle. And whenever no, I try, well, if, Amazon is like, you, "Nah, you don't have a Kindle link to your account, so fuck you." Oh really? Yeah. Wow. You can't buy digital con. Well, really, that's actually. I can't. I weird. I can't buy like Kindle edition things. Got it. Oh okay. oh right right yeah. right. And that's well, that's what these like sales the, all are. Well, no, they're they should be they're digital books that you can read on the web, and you can get I the think. Kindle. The Kindle app, or if you sync should it, work. If you yeah, if you the Kindle app should work on your phone, or if you sync your Comixology account with your Amazon account, you buy the digital version on Amazon, it shows up on Comixology with a guided view and everything. I've I've done that, but every time I've tried to buy any of these things, it's just been like, uh, which Kindle do you want to buy this for? And then mm. it doesn't have any uh, Kindles. No mm. way. That yeah. is a huge fucking flaw. That sucks. But I would at, get right on at that. At the same time, it's also like it's 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 like protecting me from myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I gotcha. 